I feel real, I feel, I just told Mike and Chris, I feel a great burden about this message because um, it's just hard. The things we've been talking about the last message and today are just really hard. Um, and as I said last week, they're at the crux of why um, Jesus was put to death, why his apostles were put to death. Can you guys hear me through this? Yeah, yeah. They're at the crux of why um, why those men um, and countless others throughout history have suffered and died. They're really difficult. Um, they're certainly difficult for unbelievers, which as we go, you'll see, and as you remember from last week, if you remember, you, you understand. But they're also difficult for Christians because they speak about invisible realities that are, are spiritually discerned and need to be continually sustained through the Holy Spirit in us. Um, and so I, I don't want to approach a message like today with kind of a, today at least, a, a triumphal attitude or a, um, I want to be as gentle as I can with a truth that's not easy. Um, last week we considered the deeply sobering message that precedes the good news. The, in other words, we, we talked about the bad news before the gospel, before the good news. I addressed you from the word of God to reinforce the truth that mankind, apart from Christ, stands justly condemned before God for sin and faces a tragic predicament I spoke hard words to you from Ephesians 2 where Paul tells us in the most unflattering terms that, that he's doing what he's doing and that the Christians are where they are in a sense because mankind are, apart from Christ, children of wrath. That is, all of us stand apart from Christ as recipients of God's justice. Apart from Christ as recipients of his justice because of our sin. And we consider that this sin in its most crucial form is not what we do to one another at its most crucial form, although that is awful, right? Human history and abuse and the, open the newspaper and you'll see, you know, man sins against man. But that's not the crux of our problem. Our common problem as a race is our rejection of God as God. To embrace the fact that we are creation and not creator. That we are those made by God to follow God, not God. That instead of thinking and loving and living towards God as those made by God, Honoring, thanking, glorifying the only God who is always, ever, and only the source of all, the sustainer of all, the provider of all. We have as a human race, as Paul says in Romans 1, suppressed this truth about God in unrighteousness and exchanged, he says, the glory of God for a lie. We have denied God as a race and by the race, I mean the whole humankind. You know, we're all one race. Whether you're Asian or African or German, we're, we're one race of people. 
but we've denied him the only rightful place he deserves. And we've come to give that place to ourselves and to what he created instead of him. And he calls that idolatry. And it, it wrecks everything. <laughs> it wrecks the universe. It, it engenders his anger because it's wrong. To put it bluntly, we have as a human race turned from giving our hearts to God as we should. And we've traded him in for what we can get out of him. And lastly, I tried to unpack something of the mystery of our spiritual destination without forgiveness through Christ. It is not a happy picture. If we're going to be honest about what the Bible says, it is a final state that is fair, it is just, it is unique for each person without Christ. The justice fits the person, the crime, so to speak. There's not one size fits all judgment and condemnation but it is in every case what the bible calls eternal destruction eternal death eternal punishment it is a tragic condition of condemnation that never ends it's unchangeable it's fixed forever and there's mystery about it but whatever you want to say about it it's never pictured in scripture as anything but terribly sad and it's irrevocable and this is the terrible news that necessitates the gospel. And to the degree that we hide from this terrible news, that we don't come to terms with it, that we don't, even if we have to struggle with it, we don't struggle with it. If we don't, to the degree that we hide from it and soft pedal it, to that degree, treasuring the gospel for ourselves and for the world around us will be injured. Treasuring the gospel for ourselves and the world around us will be muted. And watered down. Because if you don't know you have a disease, if you don't really feel you have a disease, you are not going to be motivated by news of the cure. You're not going to care. So we want to face up to this terrible stuff, this terrible news. We want to face up to it. We want to, if we have to, and I have to, we have to struggle with it. I mean, these are theological truths that don't go down easy. And I... I often battle with these things. Lord, why? <laughs> like, what does eternal destruction mean? And, and is it really that bad? Are we really that bad? But we, we, we see those things the Holy Spirit says. We come to grips with those things. We come to find our souls seeing those things by looking at them. Not at nature and creation or our own philosophies, but by looking at them in God's word and hearing what Jesus says about these things. And when we listen to his voice and we listen to the voice of his apostles, his Holy Spirit works to say, this is the truth that you cannot see with your eyes, that you cannot work out with your human reasoning, that Paul says is foolishness to the world. Foolishness, he says. But the Holy Spirit in his mercy when we look at these truths and face up to them, he works in our hearts to say, this is true, this is true. And so we see with our spiritual eyes what we cannot see yet uh, with our human eyes. And we want to do that so we can treasure the message of hope that we have in Christ so that we can rejoice in what he has done for us and what he's given for us so that we can 
stay faithful to him, knowing that what he has done and what he has for us is far better than what this world has to offer. And we want to do that so that we're motivated to share him and treat him the way that he deserves to be treated, which is with honor, with hope, before other people. Because, and this is the, what we're going to talk about this morning, I hope we'll see it in scripture, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for mankind to be saved from their sins and reconciled to their creator. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message from our creator, believing it and holding on to it, is the only hope that we have to be saved from our rejection of our creator and reconciled to our creator as we were meant to be. I want to look at a picture in scripture that both declares this gospel, which everyone can say yay about, (laughs) yay the gospel, but also testifies to its exclusive necessity, meaning you need this. Everybody needs this. There's no hope outside it, which is a little bit harder to say yay to. Okay, so I want to look at this passage carefully and then I want to talk a little bit about application, what it means. Um, Let me pray for a moment and ask you guys to pray with me. Lord, I I just pray again, as we've been praying this morning, that we would encounter you through your word and you would please help to uh, speak to us through your word today. Lord, let your word be honored. Lord, let the invisible things of your heart. God, this is so difficult for even we who believe in you to see and it is impossible for those who don't know you to see but lord we need to see in your mercy would you please through the holy spirit be glorified and worshiped through your word today would you manifest conviction in our hearts would you manifest faith in our doubts Would you manifest life and a drawing near to you where there is a slipping away from you? Would you manifest, even through these difficult truths, hope where there is such discouragement? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this passage is is after, it's in Romans 10, so it's after like nine chapters of the deepest, richest theology uh, that's in Scripture. But Paul does some summy uppy things here in chapter 10. He's summing up a lot of what he's just said. And he says this in, in Romans 9, 13. For if you confess your mouth with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to note a few important things about this passage in verse 9 and, and how it is shorthand for a lot of what Paul has said in the last, ten chap- the last nine chapters. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So this is, this is in, in other words, Paul is explaining elements of the gospel in, in different vernaculars. So here he says, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And, and this is a way of Paul saying acknowledge that there is one Lord in your life and in this universe. It's not you, it's not Caesar, 
It's not your wife. It's not your husband. There's one Lord, and it's Jesus. Implicit in this statement to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And, and Can you put the verse up there? Just keep it up there for right now, Brando. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. That's uh, verse 9. Um, so he says implicit in, in, in that verse 9 is a sincere acknowledgement that that is the expression of a spiritual awakening in the confessor to the fact that our lives are not our own, that he is the Lord of them, not us, that God created us not to be our own gods, but to be loved and cared for and guided by something and someone outside of us. It's a crucial fact about all of our identities. So to come back to that truth after we have rejected the idea that our lives are not our own but belong to God is part of coming back to God to acknowledge that he is the Lord of our lives and not us and that we have lived as our own lords, as our own masters and in doing so we have lived a life of sin against the truth about God, the basic truth about God, that he is God and he is Lord and not us. Another word for this is we repent. We repent. We recognize that we've gone astray from God and we acknowledge that he deserves to be first in our hearts. This is, this is what it means to come to Christ in the gospel. This is what Paul is doing. He's explaining Romans 9. After all this theology, how do we make this truth our own? All these truths about Jesus. And he's, the first thing he's saying is we repent. We repent. We acknowledge that our lives are not our own. They don't belong to us. They belong to him. We were made to be in relationship, not just with a buddy or a friend, but with a Lord. Then Paul says, if you not just do that, but then you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this shorthand captures what Paul has been writing for chapters and chapters and chapters. That we not only repent to acknowledge that God is our God and we've been living as if we're our own gods, but that we now acknowledge that his work of redemption saves us. We put our hope in what he has done to pay for our rejection of God. That is, his death for our sin. He dies the death we deserved. His, in his resurrection, we see, Paul says, that God raised him from the dead. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, implicit is that is that we see that our sins have been dealt with fully. Jesus is risen from the dead because he's not still paying for our sins. So we're putting our hope in what he has done for us on the cross. When he says, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's not just saying you believe in intellectual fact about Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead. He's saying you believe that he has dealt with your sins. And he's come out of the grave having dealt with your sins. They've been put away. They've been paid for. He says if you do this, you will be saved. If you, if you rely on Jesus to save you, he, he will come through. He will do what he says he does. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection to pay for our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. 
And then in verses 12 through 13, Paul says the good news is for everyone. There's no distinction. Look at 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in other places we can see the, the parallels to this. Paul is stressing the freeness of the gift to all people everywhere. Jew or Gentile, male or female by extension, rich or poor by extension, black or white, anyone, wherever they call out to God for it. But it's also humbling if we think about this. It's gracious, but it's also humbling because he's saying everybody needs it. We are not better for being poor. We're not in a special place of privilege because we're poor. We're not in a special place of, of, of privilege because we're rich. We're not... We're not unique or uniquely uh, unneedful of the gospel because we're well-educated or because we're illiterate. Everybody needs it. Whether you're Asian or African or German, the only qualification for salvation is being a sinner who needs it, which is everybody. But in the next few verses, I want you to pay attention to this. In verses 14 through 15, Paul raises the stakes. So far, all we've been saying, if you were in this room, you know, you could amen this pretty well. And, and, and even many in the world could say, oh, I like the message that you teach, that Jesus, that God loves all people and he wants them to be reconciled through his son and he died for their sins. Many people could amen that. They may not like the sin part, but they could, if you tell them that, but in the end, God loves everybody and wants everybody and they could be happy with that and not be offended. But here's the part where Paul really, really starts to make it Harder. He says in verses 14 to 15, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? And this brings us to this crucial truth about the gospel, that God's word offers no other path to salvation besides hearing and receiving the news about Jesus Christ. See, in in this rhetorical passage, how will they know unless someone tells them? And how will they tell unless they're sent? How will they come to faith unless the truth about Christ comes to them? In asking these important questions, Paul is saying it is those who call out to Jesus who are saved. And he's saying, then don't those people need to know about him? He's saying, yes, they do. And how will they know if no one tells them? Doesn't someone need to be telling them if they're going to be saved? Yes, they do. And how will someone tell them unless that person is sent to tell them? Doesn't someone have to be sent to tell them? Yes, they do. The The implications here are sobering to all of us just they, as they are deeply offensive to all non-Christians and a cause for struggle and stumbling for a lot of Christians and a cause for struggle with this truth for, for anyone who's going to look at it seriously. Paul, who received his commission as apostle directly from the Lord, is saying that he is aware of no other way for anyone to be eternally saved as opposed to eternally judged, except through hearing and believing the good news about Jesus. This is consistent with other testimonies in the New Testament from the Lord and his apostles. 
this exclusive message of Jesus. If, in other words, if you want to be reconciled to your creator, your creator has given you one way and it needs to be brought to you by people who know that way and want you to find that way. And there's no other way. <laughs> this, is, this is the consistent testimony of scripture. John 14, 5, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we could say, now does that mean they don't come to the Father through him, but maybe they can come through him without n- knowing this truth about him? I mean, C.S. Lewis did some things with that. Acts 4, 12 And there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you could do things with that, like his name, his character. Does that mean he saves us through his character even if we don't know? When you put a lot of these together, it starts to become really hard to defend any argument except that people need to hear the message of Jesus to be saved to, and reconciled to God. And, and the, the, the passage that's most compelling for me is the one we just read right here. How will they know unless they hear? But there's other passages like the ones I read, but, but here's another one that I think is very compelling to testify to the exclusive need to hear about Jesus. Jesus says to the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it unless he's born again. No one, no person will ever enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's the simple Greek-English translation of what Jesus is saying. You can't get to God in your current state spiritually. You have to go through a transformation to get to God. This is what Jesus is saying. And and this statement, first it sends Nicodemus into a rational tailspin. He's like, what are you talking about? I mean, he hears it very literally. He's like, do I need to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus, if you read it, he goes to some lengths, refers to the Old Testament and refers to Ezekiel's prophecy about water and the spirit, the new person. He refers to Moses in the desert lifting up the snake. But he's going to something to try to explain to Nicodemus, I'm not talking about physical birth. Flesh comes from flesh. I'm talking about spiritual birth. In other words, Nicodemus, your current spiritual life is actually one of deadness to God. And you need to be made spiritually alive to God in order to enter God's kingdom. And then the conversation ends in the most famous passage in all of scripture. But it needs to be connected to what Nicodemus has been asking about, what Jesus has been trying to say, this necessity of being born again. You have to be born again. Like you have to have this. You have to have this if you want to see God. He says, in trying to answer Nicodemus, how can this happen? He says, Nicodemus, here's how it happens. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus is saying the mechanism, the way that you can be reconciled to God and saved from perishing and have eternal life is to believe in Christ. And that's the same thing Paul hears when he says, okay, then I am going everywhere. And I'm going to tell everybody about this. And I'm going to get my head chopped off for this. It's the same thing that Peter said when he said, I am going to go everywhere. Eventually, he says, that takes him a while. Takes him a little bit longer than Paul. But eventually, he goes everywhere. And he says, the the church tradition is that even with his wife, you know, on the, the day that of his death, he's being crucified with his wife. And his words to her as they're being crucified to Mrs. Peter is, Sweetie, hang on. We're going to make it. Don't give up. <laughs> we're, getting our, we're getting crucified here, but not a hair on our head is going to be harmed because we've held on. People need this. It's worth it. It's worth it. And he dies just like 11 of the 12 apostles die telling this message. Because, because they think it's important. I mean, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would Nick and Nika take this little baby to... Asia. Why would Arun run off to Haiti in the mountains and build a school? Because they believe this. The, the Holy Spirit, and go through church history, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, et cetera, et cetera. Why do these people do these crazy things with their lives? Because they think this is true. Why is Luke doing F- you know, FCA and you guys doing Young Life and Donna and Rob doing their ministry? I don't mean to to make you guys spiritual superheroes, okay? We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. My point is, though, <laughs> that Jesus leaves no other path, just like Paul leaves no other path. And then he says, just like Paul, like the most unflattering thing about you and me, apart from him. He says this horrible thing about people. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Try making that the title of your Fall Harvest Festival. Hey, everybody, there's popcorn here and a moon bounce for people who love darkness rather than light because your works are evil. It's not, gonna, it's not very seeker-friendly, but we want to be wise about this. Peter says, we'll talk about in a second, gentleness and respectful. But Jesus' point is like, left to their own devices, people are not going to run to God. They're going to reject him. So he has to make them new. He has to make them new. They have to be born again. So they want him again. Brothers and sisters, I, as I was preparing this message, you know, I, I just recognized my perennial daily need to awaken new to the exclusive claims of Jesus. And I just need it, and I, and I believe it's true for, for some of us here. I, I need it to rekindle in me a sense of the incredible precious gift I've been given by God and the terrible plight of all those around us. And for some of us, and I'm, 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 I'm often there with you too, we need to grapple with this. Like, Some of you guys are like, is this really true? Can it really be like this? And I would just exhort you to not hide from this, but engage it. 
And ask the Lord to let you touch the wounds in his wrists and touch where he was pierced, so to speak. Ask the Lord to do for you what he did for Thomas, which was when he was struggling to really believe this, the Lord gave him enough to hold on to it because it was very hard for Thomas to believe. Even in the Great Commission, it says in one of the other versions in Matthew, it says, as the Lord has risen from the dead and he's about to ascend, the apostles are being commissioned to go throughout all the world with this message. It says that even there, some of them were doubting. They were struggling with doubt. And you know what the Lord's attitude is for those of you who are doubting this? Jude tells us. He wants you to be believing, not unbelieving, but he's merciful towards you. Jude commands us by the Holy Spirit, be merciful to those who doubt. But, but do what you gotta do. Thomas, come here. You need to do this, do this. Let's, let's, let's do it, let's go. Let's move into grappling with this. Now, as a wrap up today, I wanna come back to 1 Peter 3.15. So I've tried to present to you guys Last Sunday, we, we went real hard on man's predicament. This Sunday, we, we, talked, we talked about the solution and the exclusive need for that solution. But today, I want to talk about, for those of you who are like, yeah, 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 let's go, let's go, let's go. I want to talk about how to work this out a little bit, how we should be thinking about working this out in our lives. And as I explained last week, I, I, it's not my job to tell each of you what specific implications are for you at work in, in the truth that this is the message to reconcile people to God and that all people need it. Your neighbors, your moms, your dads, your brothers and sisters, your students, your, the people, the shop mart, and your, your coworkers. I can't tell you specifically what, what the implications are for each of you. The Great Commission is for the whole church but not all in the same way. The Bible gives me no right, and I, I struggle when people come up in evangelism meetings, and you'll see this. They will make everybody feel like it's all their job to go to Spain or to every day be handing out tracts, and they, they do a lot of guilt on you. I, I just be honest with you, I, I struggle with this. My Bible guy is always saying, they taught me in seminary, show me in the text, show me in the text. And so when someone starts laying specific mandates for evangelism on each person in a kind of a one-size-fits-all way, my show-me-the-text gene kicks in, and, and I struggle with that. The Great Commission is for the whole church, but not all in the same way. Paul does not, you can search him and show me if you find this. Paul doesn't write to the churches and tell the members to leave their fishing jobs and travel with him to Spain. Jesus did that with specific men. Paul doesn't repeat that call there would be no churches. It would just be a, a, a brief meeting and then a going, right? Everybody would be going to the ends of the earth. Paul says, this is my specific call from God. But he doesn't take that command to all people. His vocation, he doesn't apply it literally to each person to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. So when someone comes and says, aren't you obeying the Great Commission? You know, well, yeah, I want to obey the Great Commission, but, but how, right? Like, am I called to go to Judea? Like, why aren't you in Jerusalem? Why aren't you in Samaria? Why aren't you? So in large measure, what you see Paul and Peter and the apostles do, 
those who were sent directly in the Great Commission, those who did hear his voice, those to whom Jesus says, you will be my witnesses because you were with me from the beginning. What you see them doing is laying before people the crisis facing the human family. I'm talking about with regard to evangelism. I mean, they tell them great things about what's happened to them. They command them to love each other faithfully. That's a big part of our job as Christians. We talk about it. We have, a, we have an inward mission and an outward mission. But what you see the apostles doing with regard to the outward mission is you, you see them putting before the churches the crisis facing the human family and the solution offered in the gospel. And then he invites their prayers. He invites their giving or they invite their prayers, their giving and their outward and, and for the outward mission, prayers and giving for the outward mission. And he calls believers to care deeply about the salvation of souls, just as he does. And this isn't a get out of jail free card, but I just want to be careful. But what he's trying to do is put the theological menu before them to say, look, these are the facts. People are lost without Christ all around you. They need him. Now you and the Holy Spirit have to work out exactly what that's going to mean for you. But, but if the Spirit of God lives in you, you're going to care about this. If you're walking close to Jesus, you're going to care about this. It's going to mean something for you. I just can't tell you what it's going to mean. It seems to be the wisdom of the apostles to leave the particulars to the Holy Spirit and the conscience of the believer according to the different callings they have, according to the different circumstances he's placed us in, and according to the gifts he's put in us strategically. I do believe there are gifts in some people to do extraordinary things in ministry that others aren't called to do. Not everyone is called to be Billy Graham. Not everyone is equipped and gifted to be Billy Graham. Not everybody is called to administrate a children's ministry or have the vision. And It doesn't mean that's an excuse for us to be lazy. It just means that people give particular gifts and fervor and wisdom to certain people to lead and help set the trail. So God will stir some of us to travel across continents. God will stir others of us to watch over the flock as, as elders and stay home. God will give some women the burden for Africa. God will give many the burden for, for being godly in their families to their sisters and their mothers and fathers or if they have children to, their, to raise sons and daughters who are godly or try to in the cities where they were born. God will give some the gumption to start a street preaching ministry. God will give others the conviction to try to love their next door neighbor faithfully for years, praying for them for years, looking for opportunities to share Christ for years. But this is what I love about 1 Peter 3.15. Because in 1 Peter 3.15, we see one verse that does fit all. We see a mandate for everybody without exception. There's no exception to this rule. And so all of us are commanded to follow this commandment and to live out this passage in whatever circumstance we're in. If you don't obey this, I can say, I can't say if you don't do what Luke's doing for FCA, you're in violation of God's will for your life. I can't say that, right? That'd be awful. I can say that about this passage. If you don't care and pay attention to the commands in this passage, you are disobeying God. And if you need to work out how to get there, work out that stuff, like the struggle I've talked about earlier. But I can say this is what God's will is for all of us. So Peter is speaking to the whole church, and he's speaking about their evangelistic witness to a world that is very hostile to the gospel message. 
And it's helpful because that feels like the, where our culture is heading. Um, so Peter really has wise direction for us all. And here's what he says. But even if you should, be, should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I know many of you feel it. I know many of you see it, experience it. Christians can certainly be jerks. In other passages in this, <laughs> in other verses in the same chapter, people will make it clear. Peter will make it clear. Like, don't be persecuted for being a jerk, for being selfish and mean and cruel, Christian, because that happens. And I'm sure you've seen it. It's happened to all of us probably at some point. But he says, even if you're not a jerk, though, because of the nature of Christ and the gospel and his claims, and the nature of the spiritual predicament of the world, you're going to be slandered sometimes. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to suffer. If you want to live as a Christian in this world, really, really, you're going to suffer. And so he says, here's, here's how I want you to handle this. As the culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christ, he says, don't be afraid, but honor Christ the Lord as holy. It sounds so simple, like just do it, just do it. But, but it, there's a psychology to this. When, when I'm cowering in fear, when I'm unwilling to talk about Jesus to a relative, I cannot also be at the same time treating Jesus with the reverence he deserves. When my relative, my siblings, animosity, personality is more significant to me than Christ, his strength, his power, his glory. I'm not, I can't treat him. I'm not treating him the way that he deserves. I'm not honoring him as Lord. And if that fear is silencing me when I have opportunity, I mean real opportunity. We'll talk about real opportunity in a second. I'm functionally saying, God, what this person thinks of me, what this person can do to me is greater than your power to sustain me, give me strength. Help me or protect me. And I do that. I do that. Evangelism makes me really nervous. And so Peter says, remember who the Lord is and revere him in your heart. Remember, he's the Lord. Exhale, take a breath. He's on the throne. He's the Lord. Not your sibling or your aunt or your next door neighbor. So we recognize what our fear is saying because it's often speaking and we seek his forgiveness. We say, Lord, you are God here, not this person, not my, not my ability to control things, not their ability to control things. You are here and you're merciful. You will help me, help me remember that you are God Almighty. Help me remember that you're in charge of their response, of my safety. Help me be your witness. And then Peter tells us this. He says, always being prepared Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful words. Let's think about several elements in this passage. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Right? Keep a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Think about some of the underlying implications behind this passage. In Peter's scenario, there is something going on about the way the believer is living. I, I, I love that this is, this is not, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do this if you feel this is where God's called you, but there's just something going on about the way this person is simply living that is provoking other people to ask. The person isn't coming up to them with a track saying, do you know where you're gonna spend eternity? And that is good sometimes. God uses that. He makes people start missions agencies and run to Spain. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm saying this is, this is for all of us. This is for all of us. Something is supposed to be provoking about your life. Something about the way you live makes people wonder about you. We don't know in this specific scenarios what it might be in our own lives. Perhaps in Peter's situation, he's imagining them not complaining like others in the face of a boss's harsh treatment. Like not acting, you know, not acting vengeful, not acting hopeless in the face. Perhaps they didn't re- just take revenge when they were slighted by a coworker. Perhaps they didn't cheat their boss like their buddies were doing with forged billable hours. I, I went through that. I was in a firm that, a defense contracting firm that was fine with really fudging the hours. Maybe they didn't spend all their time fretting and being anxious about the emperor <laughs> and acting like the emperor was going to really control the destiny of their hope. Or maybe fawning over him. Maybe they didn't spend all their time singing the praises of Emperor Claudius or whatever, you know? They're just different. Maybe they didn't laugh at the vulgarities that are being bantered around or get just absolutely smashed after work. You know, they'd have a pint and go home as opposed to five. Maybe they refused to participate in the sexual morality of the day. For us, somebody looks at something on their phone and says, hey, come here, look at this. And they just said, no, no, no. Sorry, can't do that. It was a time in my life where I had a bunch of buddies, um, a really, really close relative, wanted me to celebrate uh, their upcoming wedding by going to a, a, a place where women were going to be looking indecent, you know. And I just, it was so hard for me because I loved this person a lot, but I just had to walk out. You know, I can't, I can't do this. I was very young in my faith, but I just I couldn't handle it anymore, you know. I didn't mock them or judge them or tell them a bunch of stuff. I just said, peace out, guys. can't do it. (laughs) Um, Oh, man, I don't mean to be a hero in that story. That sounds like I'm boasting. I'm just trying to think of scenarios. Maybe they just always did their best work day and day and week and week and month and month. They just always worked really well. They worked hard. They worked with joy. They did a good job. Maybe they were just willing to show extra care when people around them got sick. Folks got had babies, people needed money, and they just were always generous. I don't know what it would be for them or what it would be for you. In any case, something about their lives over time was provoking. Something about their lives over time cried out to others, I have a hope beyond this life. I have a hope beyond Biden and Trump, beyond COVID vaccine or not vaccine. I have a hope, something that makes me different. 
Their lives didn't say my hope is attached to this world at all. And, and whether out of curiosity or pent-up irritation, the people around them were eventually compelled to ask, what's your deal? What's your deal? Why are you like this? Why won't you do what we do for better or for worse? And then Peter says, when that time comes, are you ready? Are you ready? Your life has been a testimony. Your life has given evidence that something is in you. And now they want to know, are you ready? Are you ready? So we want to be ready. We want to live that way <laughs> every day. That's why we want to, every day, that's, that's part of why every day we want to have a, a, a time, I, I talk about it, where we, we re-up with God. Every day we want to re-up with God. I'm not telling you it's got to be 45 minutes or 10 minutes, but every day, early, have a meaningful time with God to re-up with him and say, you are my Lord, I belong to you. You are my Savior. When I fail, you forgive. You are my strength. The only way I'm going to follow you today is your power. Every day, just getting up and saying those three things in some meaningful way for you. You're my Lord. My life belongs to you. You're my savior. When I don't follow you like I should, you forgive me. That's where my hope is. And you're my strength. The only way I'm going to do this today is by your power. Every day we, we go through that again in, in different ways for you. We want to come back to those things so that we can have that life accumulate over time that provokes people. But when they ask, we want to be ready. And, and here are just four bullet points I think that would encompass what Peter would want us to be ready to do. So let's go to the next slide. One more. Gosh, I sound like an impatient guy. I guess I was being impatient. Okay. First, we want to be ready to tell them that we have a hope because Jesus died for our sins and rose to give us eternal life. That's the hope. It's not a hope in our, specifically in, in our journey. The, yes, our journey is compelling to people. Our lives are compelling. But the hope is in what he did. He died for my sins and he rose to give me new life. We want to be ready to tell them that he brought us to repent, to him as Lord, and to trust him as our Savior. We want to be ready to tell them how he changed our hearts so that we no longer want to simply live for this world, but for him. We want to be ready to exhort them to turn to Christ so they might not be saved, so they might be saved from judgment and be reconciled forever. Now, listen, I can't tell you exactly in that conversation. I'm going to lay these four things all down for you. I, I, I don't mean to put it like that. This conversation might take place over weeks or months. But these are the elements that people need to know. They need to know. Yes, it's your hope, but it's your hope in Jesus. In the gospel message that saves, as Paul says, he died for our sins. He rose on the third day. My sins are not still being paid for. I'm not under God's judgment anymore. That's where my hope is. We want to tell them about the gospel. And, and if you don't know how to do that, please ask me. I have too many ways to talk to you about it. But, but thankfully for you, I have a simple, I do have a simple little pamphlet. I had it last week. I have it this week too. Just the two ways to live pamphlet talks about those basic elements of the gospel. But then notice these beautiful words. What, whatever we do from Peter, whatever we do evangelistically, we do so with gentleness and respect. We do it with gentleness and respect. What a great way to be like unhindered from a lot of misconceptions we can have about evangelism. 
think about what that means, gentleness and respect. It, it, it really, it's elemental. It just means treat these people as you want to be treated in their situation. Don't force yourself on people. Ask. You know, if they say, what's going on with you? Gentleness might be, can I share something with you about my life? Like, why I'm like this? Or, if you're seeing great things, that's great. I'm so happy. I know they're not for me, but can I, can I tell you? And particularly if you feel like you want to do an active evangelism where they're not asking, which is what a lot of evangelism can be, you ask, can I share something with you? I know you, I've seen your life. I don't know if this is going to help you. Or I'll often just say, I don't want to be in a position. I often, I'm not evangelizing enough, but, but often when I do that, I will say, listen, I don't want to impose. <laughs> is this an okay time? Don't get antagonistic. Don't get in debates. Don't trade insults. It's not, a, it's not a truth battle. It is spiritually, but it's not, you know, it's not a rhetorical Facebook fight. You know, I'll, I'll see these cr- supposed Christians and some atheist will make a statement and, and someone will put on there, well, you're going to hell. Hope you enjoy it. You know, stuff like that you'll see from Christians, in quotes, because it certainly isn't coming from Christ, if they know him at all. So don't, when it starts to become a a rhetorical debate that feels like it's about winning arguments, I would back off. Don't overwhelm them with more than they can handle. I had four bullet points up there. Maybe they're ready for one of them. The Spirit will guide you. Don't belittle their beliefs. Disagree with their beliefs in gentle and respectful ways if it's appropriate. And it, it, if you get to know them and talk to them long enough, it will probably be appropriate and needed to say, I don't, I don't think so. But don't belittle it. Don't take your cues from Twitter. Don't take your cues from, you know, sometimes you'll see, I love Carl Truman. He's a good, really smart writer if you know who I'm talking about. But man, does he get... Does he get nasty in the arena of arguments? I just, I'm like, have you lost the plot? There was the gentleness and respect there. We don't become hostile, interrupt, get impatient, as if we could in our own power convince anyone. We talk in kind and warm ways. We don't pretend, here's another one, don't pretend to be interested in them for one thing. Spring the gospel on them. No, deal with them honestly from start to finish. My brother-in-law told this story years ago, so forgive me if you've heard it before. My brother-in-law had a terrible experience with some guy at work who was clearly an evangelical Christian who felt on mission to convert. And as far as that goes, it could be great. What he did was he befriended my brother-in-law and talked up basketball and made him like, feel like he was going to be a basketball buddy. And they start playing basketball. And then he went intense on evangelism with him. And my brother-in-law was like, ah, I'm good. And the guy was like, well, I'm good too on basketball. See ya. We're done with basketball buddies. You know? It was gross. It would have been better for him to just go straight to my brother-in-law and just say, listen, I know you're interested in basketball. I don't really care about basketball. There's something more important than basketball. Like from the beginning, that would have been much more honoring and respectful to my brother-in-law if he just didn't pretend So, and then lastly, good behavior. Peter says, keep a good conscience so that when you're slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What Peter is saying is there's just no substitute for integrity and love. And pretty soon, eventually, everybody can tell. Like everybody knows the difference. The world's never going to love Jesus without the Holy Spirit. But there are times when the world doesn't love Jesus' followers because they're just not walking with Jesus. So Peter says, keep a good conscience. They're going to slander you eventually one way or the other. But when they do slander you, let your good behavior in Christ be a testimony. Because they're going to be able to tell. Randy Newman has this great quote. I love it. Uh, He's an evangelism guy. He preached to us like five years ago. He says, people, he says, uh, before people benefit from the good news, they're likely to be bothered by the bad news. For thinking adults, this is easier with kids, I think, I think, but for thinking adults, if they hear you talking about Jesus loves them and he wants a relationship with them, if they think they're good, they're good. Like, hey, I've got this cure for hepatitis B. That's great for you, buddy. If I ever have hepatitis B, I'll come knocking on your door. But I don't, I don't have hepatitis B. Weirdo, you know? People are often going to need to know they have hepatitis B before they're going to care about the cure you want to present. And that's not going to be comfortable. So Newman says, if our goal is to avoid conflict in life, we need a different gospel. (laughs) This isn't the one. If, on the other hand, our goal is to be truthful and loving, we have the perfect message. We can't remove the offense of the gospel. God says that the human race has rejected him in large measure and deserves condemnation. Well, in all measure, except for those whom he has reconciled through Christ. He says we deserve condemnation for our rejection of him. And there's no way to make that happy news, but it's not the only news. (laughs) The answer the gospel provides to this condemnation is that he loves us too much to let us receive that condemnation without seeking to rescue us. And the person of his son, the news is insanely incredible. He has borne our condemnation for us. He has taken on our sins and been punished for them so that we can be freely reconciled to him. He hasn't, he hasn't hoodwinked injustice. He hasn't sh- slipped our sins under the rugs. He's dealt with them honestly himself, paid for them himself so that we can know forgiveness. Okay, that's it.